can unlock any door if you only have the key. Hey, Cassettes, and welcome to Season 7 of the Black Case Diaries. (laughs) That's just too many. You know what? That is too many. (laughs) You know what? They they say 7 is the perfect number. Yeah, the perfect number to end your show. (laughs) Just kidding. You know what's funny? We ended last season with jokes about us never coming back. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to start off with us. We're not going back. We're still three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Robin. I'm Marcy. And I'm Adam. Hey! Hey. (laughs) Haven't changed. No. Have you guys missed us? Don't answer that. Um. (laughs) You know what? It's weird. This has felt like the longest gap. It really has. It hasn't. I don't think it has it, been longer no, than others. No, it's been what, like a month? It's been a month. We usually we used to take two week breaks, mm-hmm. but we have taken a month off before. Yeah. So it, I don't know why this yeah. one felt really long. Yeah. And I still feel like it should have been another month. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but then, but then people are gonna miss out on the best month I, of the year. Yeah, right? Yes, the it's best month of the year. Month. It's basically Christmas here. Mm-hmm. Animation April. It's April once again, which means it's time to talk about animation. Yes. yes. We've switched around our theme months a lot, but mm-hmm. we've never changed animation April. That's yeah. right. We probably never will. It's a classic. <laughs> Don't expect yeah. it. It's our staple. Yeah. Frightening February and animation April. Those yes. are our two, two staples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> advocating for yeah. February to change. Yep. Adam fights it, but To fright every less time. February. Fright <laughs> Please, can we do that? <laughs> Frightless February, and we just do like three like children's movies, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Care Bears or something like yeah, that. Like, Care completely franchise. no fear at all. Oh, that's great. We're thrilled to say that our season premiere—that's this episode you're listening to right now—is actually in response to a fan request. <gasps> so yeah. I don't know if you guys knew that we had those, but yeah. we you know, do. one or two. Yeah, one or two. <laughs> Yvette Morales suggested that we cover this film. So thank you, Yvette. Yeah. Yay, thank you. Yeah. This is such a good movie. It and is. We're stoked to talk yeah. about it. Yes. In September of 1979, Shockwaves rocked the animation giant Walt Disney Animation Studios. Three of their animators, Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, and Don Bluth, decided to part ways with the company. About a dozen animators followed them in the coming weeks. After several years of attempting to revive the heart and soul of Disney's animation studio, Goldman, Pomeroy, and Bluth realized that the best way to keep the art alive would be to become pioneers in their own right. So, they set off to create a studio that would, possibly for the first time in history, rival Disney, the so-called king of animation. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> coming for your ankles, <laughs> Walt. <laughs> yeah, mostly... Who really led the charge was Don Bluth and mm-hmm. Gary Goldman. They left, and I think the next day, 11 other animators resigned. Wow. Yeah. Including that, John Palmer. That yeah. must have been a bad week. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Disney's like, shit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the Disney exodus, as the event would later be known, was a vital moment in animation history and led to the creation of more studios and projects that otherwise may have never been. 
Goldman, Pomeroy, and Bluth wasted no time getting started, and by 1982, released their very first full-length feature film, The Secret of Nim. Way to start strong. (laughs) Like, uh, how do you do that, right? How do you nail it first time? (laughs) I mean, technically, the first time Disney made a a full-length feature, it was a huge success. But, like, I mean, how fondly do you look back at Snow White? I mean... (laughs) Yeah. But I think that Disney had a lot... Before they made a full-length movie... Yes, that is true. had a lot of experience. That's Mm -hmm. very true. These guys definitely had a lot of experience, too, but not making full productions. That's what I'm saying. Like, Yeah. yeah, Of course, they had skill in animation. Nobody's doubting that. Yeah. But having to do all of it yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, from scratch, a whole movie... That's a that's a whole nother right. thing. Right. You can have great animators that you brought from Disney and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. like if you have bad writers, then Yeah. They yeah, they basically yep. wrote it themselves. They basically I mean, they did pretty much everything. Yeah. And they did a great job. They did. <laughs> when you consider all of that, which we're gonna talk about. So for our first episode of Animation April, we're following Mrs. Brisby as she fights to save her family with help from the rats of Nim. As I was writing this, my computer kept trying to fix that to say the the Nim rats, <laughs> not the rats of Nim, the Nim rats. I said, um, I- I'm gonna stick with the rats of Nim, <laughs> if that's okay. Yeah, it's a real Nim rat. Over there. <laughs> no, I was about to say, did they mean Nim school? <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. I yeah, I love the secret of Nim. I think I don't know uh, if it's my favorite Don Bluth. It might be. Mm. It's it's crazy to think, like I said, how well they did first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The Secret of Nim has a lot of backstory, some of which we just went over. Before getting into the film, let's talk a little bit about the inspiration for the story and the book that came first. Yay. Right. Did you know this was based on a book? I sure didn't. <laughs> <laughs> We have talked about the Disney Exodus yes, <laughs> and the Secret of Nim <laughs> before, but we've never done a full episode on it. Yes. Yeah, it's just, it's just a touch. Yeah. Well, in 1971, author Robert C. O'Brien published his Newbery Award book, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. The story featured rats with high intelligence due to injections from scientists at Nim, the National Institute of Mental Health. O'Brien took inspiration from actual experiments performed by scientist John B. Calhoun at the real-life NIM. Calhoun's research concerned the issue of overpopulation, and he wanted to see the connection between rodents and human society. Much of his work dealt with the Norway rat. Because this breed of a rat could reproduce at any time of the year, it can overpopulate very quickly. Oh, wow. That's kind of weird to think about. Yeah. It's kind of like how it's spring right now, so it's kitten season. Yeah. So all the yes. kittens are being born, but with this animal, any time of the year. Wow. Interesting. I, yeah. And I, they... I never considered that really as like a thing yeah. to, to yeah. worry about. It's huh. interesting because like as humans, obviously we can any time of the year too. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. But- Humans yeah. are the weird ones. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's weird about humans. <laughs> Working for the National Institute of Mental Health, he set up experiments in a large barn. He built four connected chambers designed to hold about a dozen rats. He released between 32 and 56 Norway rats and provided them with everything they needed to survive. The rats could do whatever they wanted, and their only limitation was the space. 
The adverse mental and physical side effects became apparent as the rodents overpopulated. Infant mortality rates increased to 96%. Some rats became hypersexual and antisocial, and some even became cannibals. One of the most distressing results was that the rats were forever scarred by the experience. Even when introduced to healthy populations, they never recovered. Jeez, yeah. oh man. God, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Calhoun continued his research with rodents, and his most famous experiment, Universe 25, actually dealt with mice instead of rats. His work was incredibly influential in psychology and other studies related to overpopulation. Interestingly enough, when Robert C. O'Brien wrote Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, Nim scientists were not injecting the rats with intelligence-enhancing serum. However, by the time the animated movie hit theaters in the early 1980s, the scientists at Nim were injecting the rats. Science fiction really can predict the future. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> it has happened before. Oh yes. Yes. You it... can dream it. You can do it. <laughs> so, so this movie is actually the first in a trilogy that you would call Planet of the Rats of Nim. Uh, <laughs> Planet of the Nim Rats. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. The next one is Rise of the Planet of the Nim. <laughs> if you would like to learn more about John B. Calhoun's experiments. We'll actually link to a fascinating video by the history guy in our blog. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty <laughs> fascinating and also kind of creepy. It's sad. <laughs> sad. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, important work in the study of overpopulation and its effects. It is. Yes. It, it's amazing how something like that can have such a dramatic effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of see that even for us, like having. Say somebody was preparing to have one child and they end up with twins or triplets. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. oh boy, it's real stressful, real fast, like zero <laughs> yeah. to a hundred, real quick, right? Yeah. Imagine it being just like nonstop, just like constant kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that it's not the same for rats yeah. versus people, but yeah, the, yeah. the amount of mental distress it would put on anyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Calhoun mentioned after doing these experiments, he's like. You know, these are animals, mm-hmm. humans, you know, maybe we could go down that road, but we are more problem solvers. We can figure something out. So for those of you out there who haven't seen The Secret of Nim, go ahead and watch it because it's necessary. Yeah, we're probably going to spoil some things for you. Absolutely. But if you're a fan of old Disney, then you're 100% going to like Secret of Nim. Even though it's definitely different, mm-hmm. but it's still in the same vein. Obviously, it's got a lot of the people from Disney, as we mentioned, yeah. behind it, and it's fantastic. But here is a summary for you. As the recently widowed Mrs. Brisby prepares to move her children before the farmer's plow threatens to destroy their home, her son Timmy falls ill with pneumonia. Because he will be bedridden for weeks, Mrs. Brisby must find a way to save him. She embarks on a dangerous mission to enlist the help of the rats of Nim. These rats have heightened intelligence due to injections of a special serum that they received while subjects of the National Institute of Mental Health. They have formed a society within the farmer's bushes, relying on his electricity to survive. Yeah, us talking about the fact that it's the National Institute of Mental Health 
makes it seem like that's very clear in the movie. Yes. But it's not at all. Nope. No. <laughs> a lot of people actually, I, I think there are still a lot of people who are like, oh, is that what it means? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they don't yeah. really, they say they it one it time. Once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one time in the movie, they say, Nim, you know, the National Institute of Mental Health. I think like it's the, like right at the beginning too. Yeah, that, yeah. that line mm-hmm. appears in the movie, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're a kid, you're not you're not even. No, you're not paying attention. I to remember that. watching this as a kid and literally zoning out when the when the adults spoke. <laughs> it's not I was not paying attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, just, I don't <laughs> Yeah. Bring back the silly crow. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about how the movie was made. Oh, man. Yeah, why we're even here. You good? Yeah. It's, it feel good to be back in the swing. Yeah, <laughs> oh, back yeah. in the saddle again. <laughs> when Don Bluth and his renegades broke free from Disney, they had already collaborated on Bluth's first independent production, Banjo the Woodpile Cat. The team began working on it while still employed at Disney. <gasps> oh, no. Scandalous. Some accused Bluth of poaching Disney's animators, convincing them to join him in his garage-turned-studio. Bluth and Goldman's intentions were to rediscover the secrets of animation that had been lost at Disney. They knew they would be taking on leadership roles in the coming years. When Bluth asked veteran animators how to pull off specific techniques, Disney's nine old men, the creative team responsible for the studio's golden and silver ages, couldn't remember. Dang it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think there was one quote that was just heartbreaking. I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but mm-hmm. just a heartbreaking quote where they they asked, how'd you do the water in this scene? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of them said, I don't know. Did anyone write it down? It makes me think, like, if this stuff was written down and these techniques were documented, yep. how much further in animation would we be? Right. Right? We would have had Chicken Little. <laughs> the first the, Disney's first foray into 3D, like way back in, like <laughs> the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, honestly, if they had though, I feel like this whole Don Blue thing wouldn't have happened. Yeah, true, true. Because right. basically, he was dedicated to the technique and and wanting it to be classical Art. animation. Yes, and you know he's taking on a leadership role and he wants to be able to do what they do because mm-hmm. they're retiring. Mm-hmm. The nine old yeah. men. And he's like, okay, well, we should still be able to make movies that look like Cinderella mm-hmm. yeah. and look like Bambi because mm-hmm. it, it, technology is further now <laughs> right. and we should be able to do that. And that was really frustrating. So he was like, okay, well, we're just going to have to relearn and mm-hmm. Disney's not going to let us do that mm-hmm. on their no. time. Right. Yeah. So that's why he was like, anybody who wants to come, come relearn animation with me, come mm-hmm. make this production. Yes. Trained my garage. You know, mm-hmm. as cushy of a job being an animator at Disney would be mm-hmm. I can't deny that that sounds pretty enticing yeah mm-hmm. we're gonna go rediscover the passion for animation yeah. you know? play around yeah because yeah, it's the late 70s so this is the era of them kind of recycling animation a little yeah. bit mm-hmm. you know you know what I'm talking yes. about and then of course that story where they couldn't afford to color in the eyes on the rescuers yeah you know so that's why the eyes are just little black circles and <sighs> right you know and Don Bluth's like how much more money would that really be i'm sure disney has it you know right. that kind of right. mentality yeah and so yeah i think that would be pretty enticing especially because one thing that don bluth brought up was that there were a lot of women in the studio that were not getting the same opportunities as men mm. they mm-hmm. weren't getting promoted 
you know, to yeah. like higher levels. Yeah. And so they saw an opportunity to learn stuff that they weren't going to get to learn at work. Right. And so they were like, absolutely. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. While Bluth had surrounded himself with a group of collaborators at Disney, a fair share of coworkers disagreed with Blue's animation philosophy. Among these young animators were future heavy hitters like Henry Selleck and Brad Bird. Oh, snap. <laughs> You'd imagine them being like, screw you, dude. Like, I like my job. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, you're at yeah. Disney. That's yeah. the king of animation yeah. at this time. You, like, made it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was no secret that Bluth was unhappy at Disney. Jim Stewart, a former Disney executive, reached out to Gary Goldman and told him about Aurora Productions, a new company founded by Stewart and other ex-Disney executives. Aurora was interested in funding a new animation studio and a full-length feature film. Oh, snap. So you already got people going, hey, (laughs) you want to rival Disney? I know a guy there who's unhappy. Well... (laughs) I wonder if you'd take our money. Let me write down this phone number for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As Bluth considered the movie's subject, he remembered that art director and writer Ken Anderson had brought in a copy of the book, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, as an idea for a possible Disney adaptation. Disney leadership dismissed the idea, reportedly saying, we already have a mouse and we've already made a mouse movie. Um, wow. excuse me? And what? three years later, they'd make the Great Mouse Detective. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> saying, how many uh, princess movies? Fucking. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> that, the guy who dismissed it wasn't in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> he was sick that week, so they got away with They this. got away with the Mouse Detective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All jokes aside, I fucking love the Great Mouse Detective. Yes. It's pretty good. Bluth, however, thought it was a great idea. He liked the word Nim and that its meaning wasn't immediately recognizable. So he pitched the story to Aurora. Once investors saw Banjo the Woodpile Cat, they recognized the potential of Bluth's team, and the fledgling studio of Don Bluth Productions secured their funding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His studio went through a lot of names. That was the original name. So (laughs) he basically got this offer. They said, you know, we'll fund the studio. They liked Banjo the Woodpile Cat because once he had a fully complete it was like 30 minutes mm-hmm. yeah i mean well done a, a total like done production yeah he had something and he knew once he had that mm-hmm. he could show that to people that's that's your <laughs> resume right there yeah mm-hmm. and basically he turned to them and said we're taking our short form film and leaving yeah and that's nice. what they did before having the finances in place, Bluth, Goldman, and Pomeroy taught themselves the basics of production. They learned how much completed footage was needed each week in each department and how to build a schedule. The men essentially left Disney, started a studio, and started a film production all around the same time. They didn't even have a script when they began artwork for The Secret of Nim. All right. Wow. <laughs> Diving yeah. in head first. <laughs> Oh, boy. No breaks. <laughs> oh, this would be so scary. It would be. Seriously. Oh, my Incredibly gosh. scary. Dude, mm-hmm. you just left Disney. Yeah. You are secure. <laughs> and you're not going to get your job back there. No. Yeah. No, 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 no. They're not going to take you back. Yeah. Unless you make something really good, like what happened with John Lasseter when he got fired. Yeah. And you were like, oh. Yep. Oh, whoops. Yeah. We like Pixar, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
or Tim Burton. When, yes, yeah. when Tim Burton got fired <laughs> three times, and they were like, "Ooh, but well, but oh man, Nightmare Before Christmas <laughs> looks pretty sweet, actually." <laughs> Might want to put our name on that one. I think. Yeah. With input from Goldman and Pomeroy, Don Bluth designed the characters and storyboarded the entire film. He attempted to write two pages of the script a night, bringing it to Goldman and Pomeroy for their insight. When the time came to begin animating, Bluth and his team approached the process as actors. John Pomeroy even donned a flowing cape with long fingernails to act out the motions of the character Nicodemus. For years, Bluth had been a big supporter of rotoscoping, which is the process of animating over live-action reference footage. So using reference footage for The Secret of Nim was incredibly helpful to the animators. Mm-hmm. Sounds like fun, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would totally do that, though. I don't know yeah. if I'd get to the animating part. We would just act things out. <laughs> yeah, it just because the best part is that you have to kind of overact. Yeah. yeah. If you're being an evil character or something, you have to be very evil, you know, <laughs> because... Because when you're translating just from a video to it, like a cartoon, mm-hmm. you have to exaggerate those features because, you know, you can't directly translate your face to a mouse face. Yeah. yeah. Right? So the more <laughs> exaggerated your expressions, the easier it is to translate. So they have to do it that way. And that looks like so much fun. That's yeah. why so many animators have like a mirror at their desk. Yeah. And they're doing it constantly. Mm-hmm. A drama coach came in to hold an acting class for the animators. This class helped them approach their work as actors, adding nuance to the animation. Yeah, Don Bluth said that, you know, you just can't do it without having acted it. Right. You know, because there's just so much to it. You know, if you can be the character and then walk how you think the character would walk and you you don't think about that kind of stuff unless you're in the mindset of an actor. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in the, you know, when you're in the mindset of an actor, you want to be that character. And then... You can draw the character. Yep. Mm -hmm. The secret of Nim begins with the sorcerer rat Nicodemus as he recounts the previous day's events. Writing with enchanted ink, he records that Jonathan Brisby, a mouse, died while trying to poison the farmer's cat. This scene also introduces the stone, a magical amulet that Jonathan wanted Nicodemus to give to his wife, Mrs. Brisby. He is voiced by British classical actor Sir Derek Jacoby. Jacoby has played the master in Doctor Who and recently appeared in Murder on the Orient Express. He's fun. He's a fun actor. Nicodemus' magic abilities were added to the film. In the book, the rats cannot perform magic, but use science and technology to their advantage. The stone is another component added by the filmmakers. The movie never explains where the stone came from, but some fans theorize the stone is somehow a piece of Jonathan, like his heart or soul. Yeah. That's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. yeah. You know, that theory, I saw that theory, and then rewatching the se- the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. you know, Nicodemus talks to it like it's Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. Every time he pulls it out, every time he's talking about Mrs. Brisby, mm-hmm. yeah. and what's going on, he's just talking to the stone. Yes. Like as if it's you a know. part of him. Somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it seems like that's a pretty good theory. I don't think yeah. that I don't think that the writers or animators ever thought about what it was. Probably not. <laughs> but that's a nice little yeah. answer. Yeah. It's That's where the fans come in. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
The producers explained that the amulet was a device to illustrate Mrs. Brisby's power. Because of the stone, she can save her children at the film's climax, instead of the rat saving them for her, as they do in the book. Yeah. Power. Yeah, yeah she's the hero of her own story. I think I think that if the rats had done it, mm-hmm. she still would have been the hero because she was she went and got them. She yeah, you know, yeah. she did all the stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think for children watching, it was much more clear that it was yeah. her when she was the one that was able to do it at mm-hmm. the end. Next, we meet our hero, Mrs. Brisby. You may notice that the name of the main protagonist in The Secret of Nim is Mrs. Brisby, not Mrs. Frisby. Her name was changed to avoid copyright issues with Whammo, the owner of the Frisbee at the time. Yeah. Oh, son of a yeah, gun. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Wasn't the name Frisbee already taken from like a pie company? Because yeah. they were throwing pie tins around. Oh, yeah. When Don Bluth designed Mrs. Brisby, she went through several different versions. She went from a happy mouse in a yellow gingham apron to an adorable country mouse in a tattered red cape. Originally, he positioned her ears to the side of her head, but later decided to push the ears up and back, similar to a 1930s hairstyle. The final Mrs. Brisby looks poor and frail, like an unassuming character seemingly unable to hold her own in the harsh and terrifying world. Elizabeth Hartman voices Mrs. Brisby. She was known for films like The Beguiled, and Full Moon High. The Secret of Nim was her last film, and she retired from acting. She passed away only a few years later. Because Mrs. Brisby was never given a first name, fans of the film call her Elizabeth in memory of her voice actor. Oh, that's really That's sweet. really nice, that actually. Nice. <laughs> that's a headcanon for me now, yeah, I think. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. When Mrs. Brisby first appears on screen, she's visiting the doctor, Mr. Ages, played by Arthur Mallet. We remember Mallet as Toodles in the 1991 film Hook. Hey! Right. Yes! Mrs. Brisby tells Mr. Ages that her son, Timothy, is ill. After hearing the symptoms, Mr. Ages diagnoses him with pneumonia. He gives Mrs. Brisby medicine and suggests that Timothy not go outside. Knowing that she has to move her family to avoid the plow, Mrs. Brisby leaves, unsure of what to do. Yeah. Okay. One question I've always thought is like, sure, he's got pneumonia, but mm-hmm. how impossible is it for him to like move? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? But you get to thinking like, how far do they have to go? Because to a mouse, yeah. it's the backyard is much further. So... You in know. the book, they kind of explain it a little bit more. They explain that where they're currently living, their like winter home, mm-hmm. is much more insulated. It's much warmer in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like super warm, but warmer. Right. And when they first move to their summer, what they call their summer home, it is a bit chilly at first. Right, because it's not quite summer. So so them being in that chillier environment is not good for his pneumonia. So she wants him to be as long as possible in the more insulated home to keep the pneumonia from getting him. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. in the movie he just says he can't go outside. On her journey home, she encounters Jeremy the Crow, played by comedian Dom DeLuise. Yay! All right. When it came time to start casting 
Bluth, Goldman, and Pomeroy were trying to think of actors that could bring a little bit of celebrity and were the best fit for the characters. They were hoping for actors that could appear on talk shows to promote the film. Yeah, I can't blame them, though. Yeah. They're battling the giant. Yeah. Yeah. Dang it. And then everyone was like, what a great wow. idea. Oh, oh my goodness. Smart, smart, smart. One night, early in production, Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, and Gary Goldman were all in their homes watching the same movie on TV. The film was The End, starring Burt Reynolds and Don DeLuise. Thinking that DeLuise would be perfect for the part of Jeremy, Goldman called Bluth. The line was busy, so he called Pomeroy instead and received another busy signal. It took 40 minutes to get into contact with each other. It turns out each one of them was on the phone trying to call the other two about casting <laughs> Dom DeLuise. <laughs> ah. uh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, man, it sounds so frustrating. Yeah. Yes. All you got to do is, like, set it down for, like, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you're like, oh, I'm getting a call now. <laughs> Just, oh, but they were probably so excited. They're like, I'm going to yeah. keep trying. Yeah. Keep trying. They knew it. They were like, oh, this is it. This is it. It's kind of sweet. Hilarious. That they all came up with the same. Yeah. Same it, it shows you how little time. was on TV back then. They were yeah. all watching. <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> the three channels they had. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also real nice because as soon as they finally got in contact, they were yeah. all like, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, nobody had yes. to talk anybody into it. They were yes. just, all, they all had the same idea. Perfect, perfect. DeLuise truly brought Jeremy to life, adding his take on the lines and providing comic relief for the film. Jeremy is much less prominent in the book, but he's incredibly memorable to children watching the movie. I would say so. Yeah. Yep. Jeremy was Don Bluth's favorite character to work on because he was so much fun. DeLuise gave the animators such a clear idea of Jeremy with his voice. They didn't have to think too much about his development. Don Bluth wanted to make Jeremy more interesting to the audience, so he added elements like the crow searching for a mate. In addition to details like this, DeLuise would also make additions in the sound booth. Yeah, he essentially he did a little bit of what Robin Williams did with the genie yeah. in Aladdin, not nearly on the, at the scale <laughs> that Robin Williams did it, but he did, you know, well, the way you wrote this doesn't really make sense to me. So I'm going to I'm going to read it this way. Yeah. yeah. Uh and then yeah, we'll see we'll see what you think, you know. Yeah. The thing is that if I start sneezing before I say the word allergic, Will they know? No, no, they won't. But you'll finally say it. You'll say, I try to sneeze, 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 sneeze in my breath. You see, I'm alert. I'm alert. Then you start yeah. explaining what it you is. You don't, in other words, let me just try it once. Okay. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to sneeze here. I'm not going to sneeze here. But I will start to sneeze That's right it. after that. See how that, if that works for you. All right. Now, if that had been an actual cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. See, I'm allergic to cat. I'm allergic to I'm allergic to Now. I'll do it your way now. I mean, if you don't mind. But what's hilarious to me is if you if you read the original 1982 reviews of this movie, one of the biggest criticisms people had yeah. was that they could not get into the movie because the voice of Dom DeLuise just took them right out of it. Oh, because wow. he had such a distinctive voice. Yeah. 
And it was so obvious that it was him. To them, it didn't feel like it was the character. And now it's the norm That's to do this. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. What the hell? Isn't that interesting? Because yeah. back then they were like, oh, oh, no. I just know I'm listening to Dom DeLuise. Yeah. After Mrs. Brisby befriends Jeremy, Auntie Shrew stops by the Brisby's residence and visits with the children. Character actor Hermione Baddeley plays the brash Auntie Shrew a nosy neighbor who warns Mrs. Brisby that the frost is off the ground and the plow will be coming soon. Baddeley played Ellen, the maid, in Mary Poppins and Madam in The Aristocats. The Aristocats. Auntie Shrew not only warns the other animals about the plow, but she also joins the fight for Timothy's life. She jumps on the plow with Mrs. Brisby and helps her cut the fuel line just before it destroys Mrs. Brisby's home. So... Yeah, on my most recent watch of this, I forgot how helpful Auntie Shrew is. Yeah. yeah. She's in two scenes. Mm-hmm. She's but not in a, yeah. She does a lot. Yeah. That's yeah, a big deal. <laughs> right, because I remember not liking her. Yes. As a kid, because the kids don't like her. Yep. And like she, you know, they call her Auntie Shrew. Yeah, she's, and, like, she's just too much of an adult. Yeah, and she's just like... You know, kind of abrasive, and but it's like mm-hmm. watching it now. I'm like, oh no, she's a like, hero. She's yeah. a hero. Yeah, hundred like, percent. Yeah, she comes through. She gets all the other animals out when the yep. plow is coming, mm-hmm. and then she stays behind to help Mrs. Brisby. Jumps on the. She risks her life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know. I mean, and then she's just like, and and then at the end, when you think she's gonna scold Mrs. Brisby. For doing something so dangerous, she like puts her arm around her and she's like, "It's okay, we'll think of something. Let's just get out of oh. here." It's like, oh my yeah. gosh, she's she's amazing. <laughs> I wish Jonathan were here. Well, he's not. Stop it! What am I going to do? We'll think of something. Come on, let's get out of here. It's amazing how an entire movie can change just by watching it when you're older. Yeah. <laughs> just, the di- just just having different experiences or having, you know, recognized what characters are really trying to do. Yeah. It yeah. just changes your whole perspective. It's amazing how that works. Desperate to find a way to save her son, Mrs. Brisby agrees to let Jeremy take her to see the Great Owl, a fearsome predator in the nearby woods. Mrs. Brisby is terrified to see the owl, knowing that he would normally eat her (laughs) under regular circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Veteran actor John Carradine reportedly seemed out of it when he arrived to the recording session. He suffered from arthritis, and his medicine made him feel loopy. So Bluth and his team gave him some coffee and chatted him up until he was sharp enough to lend his voice to the great owl. After recording his lines, he declared that his delivery was the best that he had to offer, and he did not want to perform a retake or alternative versions. This agreement worked out just fine because the performance happened to be perfect. (laughs) 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 Cut a break there. Carradine was a legendary actor that appeared in classics like The Ten Commandments and The Grapes of Wrath. He was also the patriarch of an entire acting family, including David Carradine and Robert Carradine. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yes. David Carradine being Bill from Kill Bill mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff. Bobby Carradine being the guy from Revenge of the Nerds and he's the dad in Lizzie McGuire and yeah, yes. all that stuff. 
The Great Owl was one of the first characters that John Pomeroy worked on for Nim. He said that Carradine's delivery helped shape the character and gave the animators an idea of how he should look and act. If you pay attention, you will notice that the Great Owl and Nicodemus speak and walk similarly. They also both have the same glowing eyes. Pomeroy later said that this was meant to show that they were two incarnations of the same spirit. Filmmakers even considered having the same actor portray them both. Yeah, it's mm, crazy. Interesting. Yeah, they both also have those like bumps on their yeah the warts. They're like yeah yeah quote yeah. unquote hands, hands. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like talons talons and, and, yeah. yeah interesting mm. I never thought about that when my sister my dad always talks about when my sister saw the secret of Nim she was just so enthralled and blown away by the fact that Mrs Brisby was so brave and brave enough to go see the Great Owl which yeah. obviously. Very scary. This scene is a little terrifying. We yeah. we yeah. see this kind of like very, very scary spider that gets absolutely crushed by the owl. Uh-huh. And the owl is looking over her. His head is upside down. He does like the 360 head move yeah. and yeah. kind of like contorts his body. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't know it was an owl yet, <laughs> you know now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And it, it is it is scary. The Great Owl tells Mrs. Brisby to visit the rats in the rosebush by the farmhouse and ask them to move her house to safety. Although she isn't sure how this could be possible, she does as she is told and finds her way to Nicodemus. She reunites with Mr. Ages and meets Justin, the captain of the guard. They take her to a council meeting in progress. Stage actor Peter Strauss voices Justin. He starred in series like Tender is the Night and Maloney. During the council meeting, Mrs. Brisby encounters the main antagonist of the story, Jenner, played by Paul Shaynar. Shaynar appeared in productions like Scarface and Dynasty throughout his career. All right. Nice. He had a really low voice, too. Mm. Nice. He was always cast as the bad guy. Mm. Cast as the heavy, because he had the low voice. After recording his voice for the power-hungry Jenner and seeing his character in action, Shaynar requested to record his lines again. He was concerned that his original performance fell short, and he knew he could do better for his character. Interesting. Nice. So, yeah. so was it fully animated when he did them again? I don't know if it was fully animated, but he might have just seen because I know Maybe that there a few were clips. times. Yeah, there were yeah. some like black and white okay. mock-ups and and things, but he might have seen the animation and been mm-hmm. like, "Ooh, my like, voice isn't I quite matched." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's so hard to match voice to animation. Mm-hmm. That's why they always do it the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Brisby, a thousand pardons, my dear. Forgive the ill temper of my colleague. It would be an honor to assist Jonathan's widow in any way. Don Bluth, Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, and the rest of their team completed The Secret of Nim on a budget of roughly $7 million in about 30 months. Wow. That's a lot of money. To put this into perspective, The Fox and the Hound, released in 1981, cost $12 million and four years to make. Holy cow. Wow. Oof, they really n- knocked this one out. They yeah, booked they it did. and they did. They had way less money, especially when you think about the amount of money that they had in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that was about half of what The Fox yeah. and the Hound had. Yeah. <sighs> the men originally estimated that The Secret of Nim would need about $6.5 million to complete but they were only awarded $5.7 million. Goldman and other producers took out money on their homes to make up the difference. Between them, they raised an extra $700,000. What? 
Wow. What? What yeah. are you doing? <laughs> Dude, they must have really believed in this project. Yeah. That is some serious stuff. I, know. I don't yep. know if I could do something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, oh, man, even if you don't scary. like The Secret of Nim, mm-hmm. you should at least respect the fact that yeah. people worked around the clock. They donated their time. They mm-hmm. used their own money. Yeah. yeah. They left their secure jobs to do this, basically sleeping at work. <sighs> They hated Disney so much. <laughs> it was their hatred that fueled them. Yeah. No, and stick it to them. <laughs> and that's the thing. They never said that. You know, yeah, that was no. never. Mm-mm. They were like, no, we yeah. don't. We just, we want to give Disney some competition. Yep. Yeah. And it'll, maybe they'll mm-hmm. up their game. And they and Disney they, totally yeah. did, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Don yeah. Bluth have said it. They, you know, when we talked about it in the Exodus. Right. It was really about finding what it means to be. To, to have passion for animation yeah. again. The it, love of the art. Exactly. That's what it really was. And yeah. and yeah. Of course it would drive Disney to be better because they were trying to produce something yeah. on the level, if not better, than Disney. In one of the interviews where Don Bluth was with Gary Goldman and they were talking about how much money it was and everything, Gary Goldman said, yeah, a bunch of us took out like third mortgages on our houses to be able to raise this money and stuff. And Don Bluth turns to him and he's like, you hit that from me. I didn't know that. What the <laughs> what? fuck? Yeah. All these years later. <laughs> I have a feeling Gary Goldman is actually a very humble guy. Yes. Because mm-hmm. I feel like a Don Bluth gets all the credit. And mm-hmm. I feel like Gary Goldman did a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sure seems like Yeah. It. And John Pomeroy, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, from watching old footage from the 80s, he was a young guy working oh, yeah. on this. Yeah. Oh, man. The team worked in a 5,500-square-foot building off of Ventura Boulevard, with the staff essentially living in the space during production. By the end, people were even working in the hallways. There was no budget for overtime. Most of the animators were donating their free time to the project. Approximately 100 people worked on location, while 45 painters worked from home, stopping by to pick up their work. The entire team worked around the clock. They believed that art was its own reward, and the ability to inspire through animation. Oh That's yeah, what we're talking about. Oh, you really yeah. have to believe in this stuff to to work that hard <sighs> mm-hmm. on it. I know for nothing. You yeah, know? exactly. Yep. People who work around the clock on something for no money, mm-hmm. they're real heroes. You know. Yeah. And and I mean, <laughs> yes, I know, right? <laughs> and especially you, when it's a podcast. <laughs> thanks to that fantastic yes. content they put out. Yeah, the amazing. Content. Without them, we wouldn't have this wonderful. I mean, this movie. This movie. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah, talking about the, the movie. Movie. And a passable podcast. <laughs> but jokes aside, yes, for real. Thank you to mm-hmm. those people doing that yeah. because we wouldn't have movies like Secret of Nim. Yeah. Or probably any other Don Bluth movies right. after mm-hmm. that, right? Exactly. So it's amazing that they did all this work for nothing because I imagine they probably weren't making a ton anyway. Yeah. And yep. then no overtime. Ooh. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's rough. Yeah. That's Oof. rough. Sleeping at your desk and not getting paid for it. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Mm. This work ethic made sense to Don Bluth, who spent his childhood riding to the movie theater on horseback from his family farm. As a child, animation inspired him. He had made it his life's mission to give the rest of the world that same experience. In a behind-the-scenes video, Bluth explained, The money is not anything. The money is what we use to get it to happen. But what you are making is something that could change lives. If you can't inspire, well, then what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, back then, this was the way to make anything happen. Without CG of nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. The way to 
make whatever you can envision happen was through animation like yeah. this. Yeah. Right? You have a dream that you want to see something happen in a movie or you have this inspiration to create a character or something like that. This is how you make it happen. Yeah. And I can totally understand just having that passion immediately. It's like, I want to make that. Yeah. I yeah. want to give the feeling that I'm having to other people because I can make anything happen through this medium. And right. I think that's mm -hmm. super cool. You know, because he talked about, you know, being a farm kid and riding his horse. And he said, you know, I want, if there are other farm kids out there, <laughs> that when they go to the movies, I want them to see what I make, you know, and yeah. be inspired by it. So now we're going to move on and talk about some of the lovely music. Yay! From this movie. Jerry Goldsmith had just finished work on the 1982 classic horror film Poltergeist when he was called about composing for The Secret of Nim. He had never scored animation before, so he was interested in giving it a try. Usually, a composer has completed footage to watch while writing music for each scene. However, Goldsmith could only see about half of The Secret of Nim through pencil drawings and ink sketches. He admittedly found it difficult to achieve a flowing line of music because the timing in animation is so different from live action. Yeah. I love Jerry Goldsmith. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm a very absolutely. big fan <laughs> of Jerry Goldsmith. So I love that he scored this movie because really he was a live action mm -hmm. composer. Yeah. That was what he did. So, I mean, props to him because. You know, I feel like with a big budget movie like Disney, by the time the composer comes in, I feel like there's enough for them to watch, <laughs> right. yeah. to compose. But <laughs> he comes into this, and it's just storyboards that yeah. they haven't even completed. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is all subject to change. Yes, and he mm -hmm. said that they would change stuff. And, you know, he'd call them, and they, they would say, okay, now we added this scene. And he's like, wait, what's happening in this scene? What's happening now? It's changed know? the entire thing. Like, ah. Yeah, there's another 12 seconds that I have to fill. Yeah, it's like, well, you see, Domba Louise delivered this sick line, so we had yes. to add we just... 40 more frames mm -hmm. here. Oh. And, you know. Goodness sake. You're welcome. What a pain. <laughs> but it was Goldsmith's experience in live action that set the score apart from other animated movies. After the first recording session, John Pomeroy reportedly went to Goldsmith and told him that he had made animation history. Goldsmith said, As I told the producers that if they wanted a Disney-like, synchronize-every-cut type of score, I couldn't do it. I wanted to score it like a live-action film, and they agreed. Yes. Cool. And, you know, you think about uh, Disney, they <laughs> followed suit because mm -hmm. they did The Black Cauldron just a couple mm -hmm. years later, mm -hmm. and they hired Elmer Bernstein <laughs> right, to yes. do the score for The Black Cauldron, which he was also squarely a live-action mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. And so he scored The Black Cauldron very similar to a live-action epic fantasy movie, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is kind of what Jerry Goldsmith did. With it, instead of it being really a big epic, you know, it, he said it was more like an opera. <laughs> he incorporated eight leitmotifs throughout the score and described the film as an animated Peter and the Wolf. Mm -hmm. The Peter and the Wolf, it's it's kind of like a little, it's a little story, 
where with each character there is a lay motif. So what he was uh, saying was right, right. we have this kind of we've missed menagerie of animals and you know Mrs. Brisby comes in and then we've got Jeremy coming in and all of this mm-hmm, stuff and mm-hmm. with each one they're having a different theme and very similar to Peter and the Wolf as mm-hmm. each character comes back. Gotcha. And, yeah. Whenever Nicodemus or the amulet was on screen, Goldsmith used a choir. Yeah. That's very cool. To add a little bit of a spookiness, something he did in Poltergeist as well. (laughs) Uh. Right. (laughs) The animators storyboarded to a radio track instead of a script. So if Don liked a piece of music, he would storyboard to it. In some cases, Goldsmith wrote to the animation, but overall the animation was completed to the music. He worked with the producers very closely, constantly speaking on the phone or visiting each other at Goldsmith's house. Seeing the actual final print was emotional for Goldsmith because he was amazed at how well the visuals and the music worked together. For the songs in the movie, Goldsmith collaborated with Paul Williams. Williams was the lyricist for the Muppet movie and the Muppet Christmas Carol. Freaking How awesome. sweet. Yes. The little song that Mrs. Brisby sings to Timothy. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I can't imagine working on this project <laughs> and all you see are black and white stills, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ink sketches, drawings yep. for the longest time, and <laughs> sometimes little little bits of animation. But at the end, you're like, oh, it worked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and it makes me That's think, yeah, in any position in filmmaking, whether it's live action, animation, whatever you're doing, Mm -hmm. if it were me, like, I feel the premiere of the finished movie would be my favorite part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You finally get to see it all come together. It would be so hard for me because of my anxiety. And I feel like I would be sitting (laughs) there and I'd be like, don't watch it too closely. You've seen all the mistakes. (laughs) It it comes to your part and you're like, gosh, shit. That's that's a very good point. But but just hearing how emotional it was for Goldsmith, I'm just like, oh man, I kind of want to be there. I wish I was in the room with him. You know what I mean? I want to see that. I I want to see see him get excited I want to experience the emotions. (laughs) Yeah. So we mentioned some of the main stars in the movie, but we also had some smaller roles. Aldo Ray plays Sullivan, an unsung hero of the movie. Sullivan is Jenner's lackey that eventually turns on him at a pivotal moment in the film. Sullivan's name is never mentioned on screen, and the filmmakers didn't realize this until after the film had already been released. Whoopsie. Yeah, that pivotal moment (laughs) where he's dying and he just... Throws that dagger. He just tosses it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And you read the credits where it says his name, and it's Sullivan, and like... And you're like, who's that? Next, we have Shannon Doherty, plays Teresa Brisby, the oldest of Mrs. Brisby's children. She went on to star in Beverly Hills 90210 and Charmed. Actor Will Wheaton plays Martin Brisby. What? I know. Hilarious. The second oldest (laughs) of Mrs. Brisby's children. Wheaton is famous for roles in Stand By Me and Star Trek The Next Generation, among others. In the straight-to-video sequel, The Secret of Nim 2, Martin is actually a villain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. When researching, what? yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah, like, it sounds like the second movie is not so great. I mean, it's just like the Disney ones where the sequels, mm-hmm. I mean, they're just, just, just don't worry about you it. Know, sweep them under the rug. Yeah. yeah. 
they're they don't, they're not like canon or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Jody Hicks plays Cynthia, the youngest Brisby child. Hicks only appeared in three productions in her career. Ina Freed voices Timothy, the bedridden child of Mrs. Brisby. Freed appeared in multiple films and TV shows, including The Wonder Years and Saint Elsewhere. She is now the chief technology correspondent at Axios. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what a change cool. there. Yeah, she's a journalist now. Very nice. Dang. Tom Hatton plays Farmer Fitzgibbons, and Lucille Bliss voiced Mrs. Fitzgibbons. Hatton appeared in series like Hogan's Heroes and Gomer Pyle USMC. Lucille Bliss was a prolific voice actor that provided the original voice of Smurfette. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Iconic voice there. Yeah. Although uncredited, Frank Welker voices Dragon the Cat. Welker is an iconic voice actor that originated the voice of Fred in Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Yeah. And he was Scooby for a long time, too. Mm -hmm. So a little fun facts for you. The production schedule was even tighter than originally planned because the studio was commissioned to animate a sequence for the musical Xanadu. Just by watching the sequence, you will immediately recognize the Bluth fingerprints in the animation. Oh, yeah. Uh, I watched Xanadu. <laughs> I had the privilege, the honor of watching Xanadu when we yes. did our Kenny Ortega episode. We ended up not ah, talking yes. about it because he was a choreographer for Xanadu. This was a famous Olivia Newton-John musical that was also famously terrible. People hated this movie. Oh, boy. I didn't think it was actually that bad. Yeah. <laughs> when this sequence came on, I was like, that is Don Bluth animation. I looked it up. It looks like Thumbelina. Oh. Yeah. It's amazing how recognizable yeah. the, mm -hmm. that style is. Because it's like, it's not Disney, but it's still that hand-drawn yeah. stuff. Yeah. So it's you, you can still recognize it. Mm-hmm. The Secret of Nim won the Saturn Award in 1983 for Best Animated Feature, Yay. which is pretty awesome. Yeah, we love our Saturn Awards. It was nominated at the Saturn Awards for Best Fantasy Film, and it was nominated for a Young Artist Award for Best Family Feature, Animated, Musical, or Fantasy. So how do you guys feel about this movie? Love it. I mean, I, right? Yeah. Yes. I love it. I love how dark it is. Mm -hmm. It's gritty. It's weird. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Not too weird, but a little. No. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love the strength of Mrs. Brisby. Yeah. 1,000%. The, yeah. The female characters in general in this are yeah. very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting there was no, I like that there's no romantic plot, though. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Justin definitely has a thing for Mrs. Oh. Brisby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever, you know, I'll ship it, I guess, it's fine. <laughs> but I, maybe he's taking a step back because yeah, she's, she's freshly wearing Freshly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love right. that about it. I love this is the perfect movie to fall asleep to. Yeah. It's like calming. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. lots of whisper mm -hmm. <laughs> dialogue in yeah. this. Yeah. With Nicodemus. And so I think that when, when you're watching it the first time, you know, obviously you're really into it, but like when it's a... You're, you know, going to sleep, or it's just a sleepy Saturday, mm -hmm. and it's raining mm -hmm. or something. You put this on, it's like perfect prime oh, yes. movie. Yes, <laughs> yes. But yeah, I really, I do love it. I love how mysterious it is. There's yeah. so much mystery mm -hmm. in it that yep. we still don't understand, and mm -hmm. I love that. Right. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Now we're going to talk about how everyone else <laughs> <laughs> thinks of this movie. The Secret of Nim, unfortunately, did not 
perform well at the box office. It made back its budget. <sighs> yeah. At least. This was due in part to the fact that the owner of United Artists, which originally agreed to distribute the film, sold the company. The new owners merged UA with MGM, and they weren't as interested in The Secret of Nim. They moved up the release date, putting the film in direct competition with instant classics like E.T., Poltergeist, Blade Runner, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Annie. All of those movies are movies that, that is you've all likely heard. Stacked. Yes. About. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. It's, we name them because it's like, the They're, summer of 1982 yeah. was a rough time to be a movie. Seriously. <laughs> because there were a lot of great ones out. Mm-hmm. And not only that, it had a limited release on less than 100 screens and expanded slowly. But, some good news, upon video release, The Secret of Nim was a commercial success. Yay. Yes, it's kind of it's kind of like what happened to Balto. If you guys remember yeah. when we talked about yeah. Balto, we talked about Amblimation last mm-hmm. year during Animation April, and That's right. we talked about the fact that Balto, no one went to see it, but everyone saw it at the doctor's office yep. and at their grandma's house, yep. right? That's right. Yep. That it was the VHS to own. Everybody had Balto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody watched it. Yes, and that makes me happy because it you know sure it didn't do well at the box office but like we just said everyone agreed that the movie is good yes they just may have not seen it in the theater you know mm-hmm. whatever you got you know we go see et instead yeah yeah we can't blame you for that no. right but at least you got it on vhs and yeah. you loved it and you played it for your kids mm-hmm. and all that stuff the consensus seems to be especially when it came out that it is beautifully made Many believed, however, that something was missing. Roger Ebert said that it looks good, moves well, and delights our eyes. It is not quite such a success on the emotional level, however, because it has so many characters and involves them in so many different problems that there's nobody for the kids in the audience to strongly identify with. I sort of understand that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, there's enough. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I get what he's saying. I feel like adults really identify with the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A lot more than kids do because adults identify with Mrs. Brisby mm-hmm. and like, her mission to save her family. But also I think, you know, this is the kind of movie that you need to watch a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think that if you watch it and you kind of you can focus on a different thing each mm-hmm. time you watch it, right. I feel like I get more out of it. The more I watch it. You know, I think that kids like that because kids watch things over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. Yeah. So I bet a lot of the kids that watch this, uh, you know, when they were young, watched it over and over and over and over again. And so they probably got all these different little... Maybe they didn't understand the storylines completely, but they probably... Looked at the different characters each time. and yeah. It's so intricate. I do notice something different every mm-hmm. time I watch mm-hmm. it. And when you watch, when you have one of those movies when you're young that mm-hmm. you watched over and over and over, you carry that movie with you as you grow up. Yeah. So those kids who watched it over and over and over again probably watched it over and over and over when they got older, mm-hmm. then able to understand every piece about it, then loving it even more. Yeah. Yeah. In a 1982 review in the New York Times, Vincent Canby said, The backgrounds, the colors, the perspectives, 
The soft differences and shades of light are extraordinarily lovely. However, something essential is missing, and that is a narrative that effortlessly embodies this style and gives it point. Yeah. So it's really interesting. This is, I think this is a very good criticism of the movie. Yeah. I see what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I see what they're talking about with, you know, the story kind of being a little, just a little rougher Mm -hmm. than the rest of the animation, which makes sense. You know, Don Bluth really focused more on animation. That was their whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I still think it's a great story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's totally solid. Mm -hmm. So are we ready to wrap up? Yeah. We have any final thoughts before I get into this? Oh, I mean, I'm so glad that this movie exists and that it did yeah. as well as it did, mm-hmm. even though it didn't like shake box office. Mm-hmm. I tell you, it sh- shook the boots of Disney, though, and that's oh. what we really needed it to do. Yes. Because yeah. it made everyone work harder and produce better movies, yeah. right? And then we get movies like American Tale and Land Before Time, and then later on in Disney, we get all of those amazing disney classics right i mean oh yeah yeah so it's a fantastic movie that really set a precedent going forward for animation and it's i'm so glad it exists the secret of nim ushered in a new era of animation sure it didn't break records but it found a devoted group of fans that would remember it for decades to come for some the secret of nim is their favorite childhood movie For others, it's an inspirational reminder of the power we can find within ourselves. But on another level, it represents a pivotal moment in animation history. Don Bluth, Gary Goldman, and John Pomeroy broke free from Disney and built a studio from the ground up. They created a product that rivaled Disney in technical skill, and they did it in half the time with a smaller budget. And even more remarkably, They didn't make something that felt like a Disney movie. They abandoned the tried-and-true formulas of their former studio and created something completely different. Like Mrs. Brisby's stone, The Secret of Nim is a symbol, but instead of characterizing a mother's inner strength, it illustrated the fact that there was more than one philosophy to creating great animation. In the wake of the Disney exodus and the studio's Bronze Age of animation, New studios, new animators, and new films popped up on the horizon. Bluth, Goldman, and Pomeroy set out to better animation by giving Disney some healthy competition. And it seems that they succeeded. They proved to themselves what they could achieve. But they also inspired others to give it a try as well. And once the secret was out, classical animation began thriving again. Oh, Oh, yeah. That... Is great. Yeah, the real secret. That's right. <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. Love this movie. <laughs> love this podcast. Oh, uh, <laughs> we love you too, Adam. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Yvette Morales, for requesting yeah. that. Yeah. See, we said your name. We said it twice. Yeah. If you listened yeah. this long. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're still here. <sighs> we're still here. And if, and if you are too, thanks. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Uh, I guess that's another, the first episode of season seven. <gasps> I guess that's another case closed. Before we go, we'd like to thank our patrons, Joel, John, Jacob, Jacqueline, JD, Anthony, Shelley, Bob, Linda, Carlos, and Jaren. Thank you all. Thank so you. Thanks so much. much. You yes. guys are huge helps. You're, you're our heroes, Ridiculous, really. yeah. Yeah. You can now buy us a popcorn at buymeacoffee.com slash blackcasediary. 
And thank you to all that support us, whether it be through listening, telling a friend, or donating. We appreciate all of you. Thank yes, you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And we're back. Yeah. If you missed us. Yeah. yeah. If you didn't, you're probably not still listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you could still keep listening. If you want. I mean, just keep listening. It'll just play, your, it'll just play the next episode. Yeah. That's right. right. That's right. right. Or if you skipped one, it'll, it'll go right back to that one. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you all. And uh, we'll see you again next week. See ya. Bye. See ya. Bye. Courage of the heart is very rare. The stone has a power when it's there.